from the devil's weed to God's green gift, how cannabis reclaimed its place in the sun, which will be the topic of my book. This is Tony Budden. As one of the founders of Hemporium, Tony has been preaching the benefits of hemp for over 25 years. The progress in South Africa has been slow. So slow, in fact, that Tony coined the phrase perpetual imminence, with legalization and legislation always just around the corner. Yeah, like this is something that God gave us and we should appreciate it and let no man take it away from us ever again. Tony shares a story from his upbringing and the founding of South Africa's first cannabis company to life as an activist and coming to terms with this inner struggle of whether or not the big business of big cannabis was the right decision for him. We look back through the last quarter century and how slowly but surely cannabis is reclaiming its place in the sun. All that and much more on this episode of African Gold. I'm your host, narrator and educator, Neil Liddell. As always, we start the show at the beginning. And the beginning of this story starts with the who. Who is Tony Budden? So um, if we go back, I uh, went to school in Rondebosch, uh, southern suburbs, Cape Town, um, Pretty straightforward up, upbringing, I would say. Um, grew up in a quite a religious household, and uh, then uh, quite an important point of of my life was when I was a baby. I was uh, five years younger than my sister, and I had an older brother than her as well. And my dad always loved the ocean and um, loved taking us fishing and crayfishing and. You know, down to Cape Point and every holiday we would go to Miller's Point or Pletterburg Bay or somewhere where we could get on the boats and and he decided that it was time to move to Komiki. So we moved out to Komiki and um, that's when life changed for me. And this small change for one man would become a catalyst of change for an entire industry. Living in Komiki, Tony was exposed to two things which altered the trajectory of his life forever. The first thing, I'm sure you could have guessed, was cannabis. And the second, a love for nature and the need to protect it. Komiki is a beautiful little seaside town in the deep south of the Cape Peninsula, far, far behind the lentil curtain, where shoes are a novelty and a vegan diet mandatory. It is no surprise that if you manage to make it back to the real world, you'll be bringing nature with you, often in the form of sea lice still clinging to the beach sand between your toes. And as for being exposed to cannabis, there's not a comscorm out there who doesn't enjoy the occasional toke of the old giggly twig, so no surprises there either. But this quiet little beachside town has something special going on. For a town with a total population of about 10, seems to churn out a ridiculously disproportionate number of remarkable people. From musicians such as Jeremy Loops, Sean Koch and Alice Phoebe Lou, to world-renowned surfers Twiggy Baker, Matt Bromley, Mike February, Roxy Davis, the list goes on. And then there's Tony Budden, the king of hemp. Wait, the king of what? 
just simply tell us what hemp is? Uh, hemp is the, the plant cannabis sativa, and it's a, it's a plant. Okay. Do you want something yeah. deep? No, you no, want no, something? Just, I, yeah. I mean, I, I like it's just hemp. a plant. Well, hemp is a plant, of course, so it has limitations like all plants do. But if you compare it with many other plants, it has some properties that make it stand out. Industrial hemp is a species or variety of cannabis that contains less than 0.3% THC. How is it different from marijuana? Oh, gosh. Um, it's not the same at all. You will not get high if you smoke hemp. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> well, uh, cousins to each other, you know, it's like the difference between popcorn and sweet corn. They're cousins. Obviously, the plants look the same. They smell the same, which is what got them in trouble in the first place. But um, hemp doesn't have the psychoactive properties that marijuana does. Marijuana currently has up to 25 to 30 percent THC content, and that's the the chemical compound, the psychoactive compound that makes you get you high. Cannabis is like breeds of dogs. I like to say it's a pit bull and a poodle. You've got your tiny chihuahuas and you've got your large Great Danes. They're both dogs, but they're two completely different genetic animals. Okay, so hemp is weed's industrial cousin with thousands of uses, not one of which will get you high. But how did Tony find this plant? Or rather, how did this plant find Tony? The answer to this question takes us back to Cormacy and is rooted in a love for the ocean, a love for nature, and a desire to protect them both. Seeing visibly how, how pristine the environment was and then over my life, life span, seeing how some of it's been degraded. You know, like when we first moved to Cormacy, when I moved there, there wasn't a mall. Now there are two malls. You know, there weren't as many people living in that valley at all. And it's just... Uh, Obviously, seeing how humanity and overpopulation can put severe strain on okay. on our environment and then making a commitment to try and spread a message of awareness to protect it in some way. Okay. You know, let people become aware so of... So when did that become a sort of conscious decision for you? So when we started Hemporium, that was 1996, I was 22. And... There wasn't even a natural and organic industry then. Yeah, then back then it was. Uh, we loved the plant and we loved the first textiles that we felt, and we started making bags. And it was kind of the for the wear what you smoke market. Yeah, it wasn't no one. It wasn't for the environmental side and that. But the more we learned about it and we saw how beneficial the plant can be for the environment, and we were there for kind of the birth of the natural and organic sector in South Africa. We made it a core association for the brand to say okay right this isn't we're not speaking to preaching to the converted who love cannabis you know like how do we get people to see the benefits of this plant in in another way of of how good it is for the environment how good it is for humanity and we linked cannabis or hemp you know, to loving nature so tony was out there spreading the message that loving hemp meant loving nature and vice versa and a lot has been said about hemp throughout the years. And I challenge you to find an example where hemp and sustainability are not mentioned in the same sentence. And there's a very good reason for that. Hemp um, is something that biodegrades back into the earth. And to me, what makes sense as humans in the Anthropocene, you know, humans at any point in our existence, is to, is to not make our damage everywhere. And we've done a pretty good job at that. So to me, hemp is part of the, of the return to 
a, a thoughtful and mindful way to clothe yourself. It will save the planet. It offers a way out for all of us um, that is durable, and that is local, that is biodegradable, you know, that is alive. And that's the answer. Change the world. Change the way you live. Change the way you see things. Change everything. So is hemp, is hemp a solution? Yeah, it's part of the solution and it's, uh, you're definitely in the textile industry to move away from you know, polyesters, polycottons. Yeah, you know, like the, these blends like polycotton are actually worse than pure polyester. Because as soon as you've intertwined a plastic with a natural material, you can, can't biodegrade it and you can't recycle it. Mm. So it's better you know, to just rather choose something that's fully recyclable than to choose a blend. So biocomposites, I, I love the industry because it's better, uh, it's often a lower um, embodied energy. You're like replacing hemp with, uh, or fiberglass with hemp, but it's still not a solution because you can't, those things won't break down. Mm. So we have to look at things that do break down. And just like my emotional state at times, hemp breaks down. When one thinks of hemp in South Africa, one thinks of Tony. And when one hears the word Tony Budden, one thinks of hemp. The life of each intricately intertwined in the other. This relationship was kick-started with the creation of Tony's company, Hemporium, a company, as the name would suggest, that focuses on showcasing hemp and its many uses. So we set a lo lofty goal in the beginning of showcasing everything that the plant can do. And that very quickly became a challenge when we thought at first that it was you know, like textiles and paper. And then it became like textiles and paper and body care and nutrition and medicine and building materials and, 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 you know, like pretty soon, I think in the first five years, maybe a bit longer, we had developed 2,000 different products, sure. which is all nice and exciting. You know, like you're constantly doing development and that, but we realized not a very good business plan because you spread yourself so thin. And if you don't spend as much energy getting the product out there and finding customers as you do in development, you know, like mm. you might be making two, three hundred of this shirt. And even if you sold all two, three hundred, you don't cover your development costs. So um, we then slowed down in our, you're trying to say, okay, well, let's rather focus at getting it into as many people's hands as we could you know, into the mainstream. So sticking just with like kind of T-shirts, jeans, hoodies, you know, something that everyone has got in their, in their cupboard. And using the clothing was very important because it's such a visible message taker. So we, the minute you touch hemp fabric, it changes the way you see cannabis, yeah, especially if you've only ever associated it with smoke. Because smoke is kind of intangible. You know, it's ethereal. Where here you can touch and feel and hold something that is clearly got value. So if you thought that the plant had no value, was like uh, had was useless, and that's why it belonged in Schedule Seven, uh, no recognized uses, just evil. And now you can touch and feel something. You go, okay, wait, there's more to this, and maybe I've been lied to. So it was a very good message taker, and we focused on doing a lot of kind of promotion, um, making sure to. We sponsored Rocking the Daisies for a long time, getting it out, you know, T-shirts um, out to bands, you know, like using it as that, that medium for the message. I just want to pause here for a bit to chat a little bit about hemp in the South African context. 
As Tony has alluded to, hemp has been tainted by the brush of prohibition that has been painting propaganda against weed for decades. And unfortunately, this stigma has cross-pollinated to include hemp and is still ripe in the minds of South African regulators who think it is a dangerous substance and as such, regulation of hemp in South Africa is stuck in the dark ages with ludicrous consequences. And the result is that all the hemp that exists in this country is imported. And I think just important to mention though is the, this hemp that you're talking about wasn't sourced locally, right? Yeah, well this yeah. is uh, the great tragedy for me you're looking back over a quarter century of, of this is we definitely didn't expect to be still be importing 25 years later. Yeah. You know, we thought we'd set this up, build the market, create awareness, and be able to source from Eastern Cape farmers and, and local producers of, of textiles within three, four years. So 25 years on, you're still sourcing your hemp internationally? Yeah, we bring the mostly textiles come mostly from the East or, or India. Um, our building materials come from UK or Netherlands. Our CBD comes from the States. Our hemp seeds come from Germany. Hemp oil comes from Canada. Hemp paper from Germany or India. That seems crazy to me. It is, and it, it puts us just in this little niche because the costs of importing all of that stuff. Mm. You know, not only the time you know, that our money has to be out there because we've got to pay up front, so it can take three months between us ordering something and getting it here, sometimes longer. So, and then we still produce locally. So we bring in these raw materials, but we produce our cosmetics here. We produce our clothing and everything here. So we've, we've committed to that part. We don't bring in T-shirts from China. We bring in fabric, and we support, support local to make that. But you know, that just makes us, again, a niche of people who really understand environmental issues or understand, uh, you know, love the plant that much that they, they want to use it for that or, or they love the durability and all that. But it's we've calculated even on the, on the CBD front, we did some, some trials. We could be selling it for 1,000 milligrams for around 350 rand a bottle compared to at the moment like 750 to 800 rand for 600 milligrams. And it would still be making good margin selling it for 350 if it was produced locally. Now, that means there's a massive market, you know, because it's the same price as a good bottle of multivitamins or something. It seems crazy that hemp products are being sold freely, but growing the raw material is illegal. How on earth did this happen? Yeah, it was a conspiracy, but it was really, it was just a really well done marketing campaign. Follow the money. Follow the money. The Reefer Madness campaign, uh, they actually created, it was a PR campaign that showed how dangerous and um, potentially harmful marijuana could be. Well, did you watch Reefer Madness? I mean, you know what can happen if you smoke that shit. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. So, no wonder it's on Schedule 1. Everyone got scared, everyone uh, felt wholeheartedly that hemp and marijuana should be uh, illegal, so there wasn't much backlash or argument for that move either. Hemp should never have been a controlled substance. There was a lot of misinformation. Uh, we didn't have the education levels. People didn't know what THC was, much less how do you determine THC. Mostly it's a Schedule One drug because it's very dangerous. Um, you know, people start using it and they make their own fuel, and they don't buy things. <laughs> and that misinformation is how the world criminalized hemp. Some of these sound bites have used are obviously from an American perspective, 
but we follow a very similar path. By the way, a few of these soundbites are taken from a short film by Patagonia entitled Misunderstood, A Brief History of Hemp, which is beautifully produced, definitely worth a watch, and available for free on YouTube. So check it out. The sadness is that in the US, where some of the propaganda originated, current hemp laws are far more progressive than here in South Africa, and our regulators still can't seem to untangle the facts from the fiction, despite efforts from people such as Tony, educating on the topic for over 25 years. And thus, his famous term, perpetual eminence. This, this is what you talk about, perpetual eminence. Perpetual, perpetual eminence, exactly. That it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You know, soon they're gonna change the law, soon they're gonna change the law. And and it's I think it's the Justice Act, you know, the Drugs and Drug Trafficking Act that states cannabis, the whole plant, any product thereof, any portion thereof is an undesirable dependence producing substance. And I mean undesirable to who? Mm. Yeah, I desire it, and uh, many of our customers desire desire it. We've proved that. And dependence producing is also okay. You know, like we depend on roofs over our head. We depend on clothes on our back. We depend on food. You know, it's, it's just the undesirable word was one you know, that, that was someone told us that it was undesirable and they were lying. If hemp as a plant doesn't exist in the Medicines Act, the only other place it existed was in the Drugs and Drug Trafficking Act, which banned it outright. So then recently it was moved. It was last year. Yeah. yeah, last year out of the Medicines Act, but it's still only, it was supposed to be picked up by the Department of Agriculture, but that uh, we've heard is happening in October this year to create an act where industrial cannabis can reside. Because mm. at the moment it still defaults back to the Drugs and Drug Trafficking Act, which says cannabis, the whole plant. And that was, you know, that's, that's been... The biggest sticking point is the resistance from the Department of Justice to engage. You know, you, you, we've had lots of meetings with the Department of Health, Department of Agriculture, Department of Trade and Industry, Social Development, Rural Development. That key one that we have to break now is the Drugs and Drug Trafficking Act. So after a quarter century of activism, not much has changed. And the change that has happened has been slow and fraught with ridiculous regulation based on uninformed perspectives. And so around the time of the 2018 Concord ruling, which we discussed in the previous episode with Gareth Prince, whose case it was, uh, give it a listen if you haven't yet, Tony would finally step away from the day-to-day -day running of Emporium, not necessarily for greener pastures, but certainly for pastures of a different green. This green future was a big jump to big cannabis with a company called Highlands Investments, who were granted one of the early licenses in Lesotho. Yeah, so... Started doing more and more consultancies and through one of those at that stage was looking into South Africa. And I said, look, I don't know when South Africa is going to, you know, this is a privacy judgment. It doesn't speak to commerce at all. And he said, well, okay, let's go to Lesotho. They're giving out licenses there. And we got one of the, I think, the sixth license. And then we were going to fund uh, the operation, set it up and, and do a small operation and grow. And, and like everyone else, think to sell internationally. So they went off to Canada just Timing was everything. They timed it perfectly. When there was so much money flying, flowing into the industry in Canada, they you know, legalized it, allowed companies to list. So every stoner from the 60s to now was waiting for somewhere to go legal so they could invest. And money was just flying into these small companies. You know, Canopy at that stage was already worth like $20 billion for a four-year-old cannabis company. And they had to spend 
money. They couldn't just sit on it. So the only way the Canadian companies could value themselves was how many licenses they had, how many square feet of greenhouse, how many areas they were in, who's going to be the world domination. And we happened to offer, you know, make an offering at that stage, thinking that we're going to buy what we're going to grow. And they came back and they said, no, we actually want to buy you. So Canopy Growth, one of the world's biggest cannabis companies, a publicly traded giant out of Canada, acquired Highlands and their operations in Lesotho. But two years later, the bottom fell out of the Canadian market and Canopy started scrambling to sell off their businesses in smaller markets. And of course, Lesotho was one of these markets. So the Highlands team bought back what was originally theirs with one not so small advantage. Canopy Growth had effectively paid for their school fees. And these were some big, very expensive lessons that were learned. Well, and I'd say the most valuable lessons, and not just Canopy, the whole Canadian industry, was what not to do. The reality, the assumptions that they made in Canada around, there were a few major assumptions. One was, bigger is better. Yeah, that's like... We want to be the biggest, not instead of we want to be the best. And the assumptions as well that people who knew how to grow 100, grow 100 plants or 10 plants or 100 plants and consider themselves a master grower would understand how to run a greenhouse that was you know, four hectares inside, in size. You know, like it's different skills. You can be a master grower at home but you know, like, and, or even semi-commercially running a you know, 100 plant grow, but try and operate a 100,000 plant grow and these guys panicked, you know, like they had no idea how to keep ecosystems alive. Something goes wrong and you have to stop, you know, like shut down your what would have been your room and start again of 100 plants, but you're shutting down a four-hectare uh, greenhouse. The costs of that were just so huge. They lost so much money just trying to get to scale. And also, <laughs> and any of you who've got dreams of, of working in the legal cannabis industry... Like most guys who, who became growers and, and dealers in the black market did it because, you know, first of all, they don't like being told what to do in a normal job and having to be there nine to five. And second of all, you, you survive in that space by not leaving a trace. Yeah, that's how you survive so in the black market. now you got market. this culture clash. Now you got to, you know, traceability is, is a huge part of your job, writing down everything for compliance. You know, like everything, you've got to write down all your tricks yeah, you can't keep a little secret recipe that you put on your plants to get that extra pop at harvest just before harvest. You can't keep that off the books. So you've got to hand over your IP as a grower to your boss who hands it to the government. <laughs> yeah, so people panic there as well. And then the other thing is when you've got a huge operation like that, at harvest time, when everything's coming off at the same time, you've now got to move it through drying trimming, packaging so quickly that they ended up flash drying everything. The product that comes out has lost most of its terps, doesn't look good. It's so over-dried because they're so scared of molds and fungus. Yeah, if you've got large volumes of flour sitting somewhere for too long, that by the time it got into the shops, you know, into the dispensaries, it didn't compare to what was on the black market. You know, the BC growers in Canada, they produce some of the best in the world. They've been doing it for generations and they never stopped. You know, so they, the stuff that was in the dispensaries was more expensive because it's heavily taxed and much lower quality. 
So people went to buy as a novelty once or twice and they went back to the same guy that they'd been buying from all along, smoke a bong with him on the couch, have a good time instead of going to stand in a queue at a yeah. 7-Eleven style you know, shop. So then what happened obviously is North, they realized, hold on, we've got to focus on North America, you know, like uh, Canopy specifically. And uh, we saw the writing on the wall. They were like looking at getting out of Colombia, getting out of Portugal, you know, all of these small countries where it wasn't clear when the legal market was going to come. And we did an MBO. We got the company back, but obviously with all the assets and that management buyout. So claimed the company back. It went back to being Highlands, but now had to focus on you know, like market. So Highlands was now back to being Highlands, but not for very long. If you follow the news at all, Highlands recently merged with Goodleaf, South Africa's premium CBD brand, to become the largest cannabis company on the continent and are one of the few, if not the only, fully vertically integrated companies, which means they own the entire value chain from cultivation all the way through to retail. A really good move, I'd say, and we'll be chatting specifically about these two companies in a future episode. But for Tony, his move from small business and activism into large-scale cannabis wasn't as easy as simply jumping ship. So you've you've gone from Hemporium, which is quite a, it's you know it's a small business. You've yeah. gone from activism to you know fighting for the rights of of cannabis for like 25 years, and now you join big cannabis. Mm. What was that transition like? One of the most stressful periods of my life. Really? Yeah. Like, um, it came at a point, though, where running the day-to-day operations of Emporium as well had, you know, like it wasn't stimulating me anymore. And I wasn't the best for that role. Because there's this great, uh, there's a book that you can look up called The the E-Myth, the Entrepreneurial Myth, that the same, that there's this magical entrepreneur who thinks dreams of a business, thinks it up pulls together the investment, pulls together all the ideas, he does all the design, the, the, you know, like making all the product is the same one who's going to run it day in, day out and handle you know, employees, books, counting, taxes, everything. You know, like That wasn't me and we needed that. So I stepped out of the way at that stage. I was you know, uh, having the, making enough on the consultancies and then also had the offer to help set up in Lesotho. And uh, what, did you just say yes? No. Uh-huh. no. <laughs> I went through a lot of soul searching on my motivations. You know, like being at, at that time also more uh, new age inspired, I suppose. Uh, there was a lady called Grandmother Robin who's a North American Indian who comes and does vision quests and that in, in South Africa and went and sat down with her and then explained the situation and she said well why are you here and i said well look i've I've got this relationship with with cannabis i've been working with it at that stage for like 20 years and everything's just going crazy in my world there's so much interest in the space where you know for years we've been asking for interest now it's all you know like the eye of sauron is on this (laughs) and i've got all these people approaching me and i don't know who to trust and you know like a lot of them are i can tell aren't in it for the right reasons and you're like, I'm really just battling to know, you know, what's the right thing to do. And she said to me, well, look, yeah, and I work with the spirit of everything and, and the spirits of plants. And there's only one being that you, I believe you can ask. And I was like, who? And she said, well, ask cannabis. And I said, okay, well, um, 
how do I do that? You know, go smoke a joint and think about it? And she said, no, like you speak to the spirit of the plant. And I said, okay, well, let's, she said, do you want to do it now? I'm like, okay. And she said, okay, well, let's, let's go into meditative phase first. And she played the drum and talked me down into a deep meditation. And she said, what, what would you like to call the plant? And I said, well, let me call her sativa. She said, invite sativa in. So I was like, okay, I invited Sativa in and felt you know, like a change of energy. And you know, every plant is an energy, every plant is spirit, every being, you know, every living entity, I do believe, has a, a spirit. And um, Sativa arrived. And the conversation started. And you know, whether you believe this was a con conversation with myself or with my subconscious or whatever, or with the living sentient being. This is what the conversation went like. I said, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, I want to know, you know how, do I, how do I trust people, all these people who are coming to me, how do I trust their intentions are right? She said, well, if they believe that I'm a solution, that I am offering something that's better than the way they're currently doing things and, and they see me in a positive light, you can trust them. You know, that's enough for you to engage. You don't have to dig too much deeper about other intentions and that. And I said, well, what about if they want to make money off you? you know, what about if they, they're just seeing the opportunity to make money? And she said, well, you also don't worry about that. You, know, like, uh, you don't have to... Money is a currency, is a reward for doing good work. You, know, you don't have to... If you're doing good work and, and you get rewarded with money, don't reject that. You know, later, and, and you know, we see that very often with activists, the poverty mentality that they believe to do good, you must be poor. You know, if you're making money, you're evil. I was like, okay. And, and then I said, well, and, and what about me? How do I know that, you know that I can trust them and I'm going to be looked after? She said, well, they're not going to look after you. I'm going to look after you. She said, yeah, well, I look after my servants. What do you mean, you're my servant? You're like, I use you. You know, I, you know, like, I've got a hemp house and I've got the hemp surfboards and, you know, like, clothing. I'm using you. And she said, no, you know, like, where do you think you're getting those things from? I'm rewarding you for the work you're doing for me. Yeah, you know, I've rewarded you with your career. I've rewarded you with your clothing, with your surfboards, with your house, with your travel, with the, most of your relationships. I've been, you know, it's my reward for you serving me because if you do your work, I get to be in places I can't currently access. I get to work with people I can't currently be with. You know, I get to be free from the shackles I'm under. So you are my servant and I look after my servants. And what makes you think I'm going to stop now? It's like, okay. So I just really have to remember that I'm in service of the plant. Cool. Yeah, and, and through that in service of nature. And I've just cho chosen that this plant or this plant has chosen me. Mm. Yeah, am I being cultivating her or is she cultivating me to spread her message? And that was a quite an interesting way, a shift around that I've been cultivated to spread this message and influenced by my use of the plant in the various ways and rewarded through it by being in service. And I truly believe that you know, to do that, you have to be in tune with it. And I knew I was in tune with cannabis. Yeah, and, and like an instrument, the effectiveness is increased when it's in tune. So if you want to speak for nature or want to speak for the plant, mm. keep tuning yourself, being in tune so that your voice is heard. 
And I think that's something that I realized that I had been effective in. You know, like it wasn't the music everyone liked, and I had to be okay with that. Yeah. That that was a big thing, was I had to shift from being Tony the Hemp guy. It wasn't really a threat to all the THE guys. It wasn't really a threat. You know, I didn't have a lot of competition in the space because Hemporium, you know, like there weren't a lot of other hemp companies. So I wasn't a threat. So my job was to be liked by everyone. And all of a sudden being presented with a, a decision that I knew a lot of people weren't going to like. And I, I might not be Tony the likable hemp guy anymore. To some people, it was incredibly stressful to kind of because that was a persona that I'd created, you know, in order to be tuned to hear, let the message be heard, to not be offensive. So it was an incredibly difficult decision, but mm. thankfully the plant guided me through it and gave me that understanding that you know what I was being offered here you know, were deeper lessons, and I'm incredibly grateful for having gone through that because, as I said, like. It's there as a gift, and yeah, like never look a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah, like this is something that God gave us, and we should appreciate it, and let no man take it away from us ever again. Thank you, Tony. There endeth the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have it. That's all we have time for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to the podcast by becoming a member. There's a bunch of benefits to doing so. Otherwise, just tell your friends about us. Just pick up the phone, send them a message. They'll thank you for it. And so will we. Visit our website at africangold.media and leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. That's africangold.media. Anyway, keep well, stay safe, and I'll catch you in two weeks for another toke of African Gold.